Hi, everybody. It's me. It's Lenora. Um, it's the new dawn. How is everybody doing today? This is my second podcast I'm recording today. I have been really busy recording podcasts, which is really nice. I've been meeting a lot of interesting, wonderful people. And today is like all over the top, beautiful today. These, these two people I, I have sat down and talked to. This second person, well, I'm in Jersey, everybody, just let you know. It is It happens to be a really nice fall day. I like cloudy weather. I'm so odd, but I like cloudy, cool weather. Who else likes that? I don't know, but, um, and it's cool. It's like 50, and that's the way fall's supposed to be like. You know what I'm saying, Kevin? Where are you, where are you coming from? Where are you, where are you at? I'm, you're in Jersey. I'm in New York. You're at 50 degrees. I'm at 48. We got a little okay, bit of- Okay, cool. I love that. So anyway, I am sitting down with uh, Kevin Barheit. I have not, you know, I have not met any of my podcast people personally yet, but I hope to do that one day, maybe. But he reached out to me from Facebook. He is the author of the book, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, a memoir, which will be released soon, November 10th, right? Correct. 2020. That's right. Is still on track? Yeah, <laughs> good, 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 good question. And uh, yes, let's all, let's all stop our hearts from pounding. Still on track. That's great. Kevin developed a YouTube channel specifically to serve individuals healing from the adverse effects of abandonment, adoption, child sex abuse, and addiction. In the past two years, Kevin has created over 60 episodes and conducted in-depth interviews. He has appeared in media and podcast interviews um, as an addiction adoptee and child sex abuse victims advocate. Kevin serves on the board of the Rainbow Access Initiative dedicated to ensuring the comprehensive physical and mental health care and human services for the LGBTQ plus community. He is a senior learning and inclusive technology analyst at Union College in <laughs> Connectedy. Yes, New York. I got it. I'm proud. I'm very proud of you. Awesome. Thank you. Um, before I even start, uh, I love that you are dedicated to ensuring comprehensive physical and mental care for human services for the LG, UTQ plus community, very close to my heart, um, that community in, in itself. I have uh, a couple children who are gay, which is totally fine and beautiful. And I am, I just love everybody. And I would love for you to talk about everything that you do and your story and how you got to where you are today. Thanks. Thanks, Lenora. Yeah, you know, it's funny you end up on that note because sometimes that's all I want to talk about is the present and the future. I think it is important to look back at the past. The RAI, the Rainbow Access, Access Initiative, is something that was founded by, by Ari Lev, Arlene, and I've gone way back in our lives. And in fact, her son was very close to me and uh, he, he, um, he passed away uh, from addiction, from an overdose of fentanyl. And so there's a lot of reasons that I connect with the people I do, but there's also a lot of reasons that I say serve on a board like this or do a podcast like this or do the YouTube channel or write the book. In other words, every day when I'm doing what I'm doing, I try to remember where I came from, you know, what it was like, what happened, what are the changes that have happened in my life and what it's like now and 
what direction I want to go. For, your, for everyone that's watching, uh, again, my name is Kevin Barheit, and Lenora did a great job of pronouncing my last name because it's spelled with a <laughs> Dutch-German spelling. Uh, it's Barheit, B-A-R-H-Y-D-T. Well, my friends in Saarbrücken tell me it's spelled wrong until I tell them it's a Dutch-German spelling. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And Schenectady, in Schenectady, New York, which is up near Albany, which is the capital. And I was born and raised here. I was born in a, a little hospital, St. Clair's Hospital. And I was put directly into the foster care system because my biological mother, who I had never met, uh, she put me up for adoption and then left. And I didn't know anything about her all my life. And that was really an important part of my journey of healing and getting to know who I was and, and maybe what I have to offer others in, in my experiences. And after I was, a, I, was, I was in foster care for a couple of months and then I was adopted and placed with the family I, I have now and have, have had all my life and I'm 58 years old. Uh, my 91-year-old mother actually lives upstairs with me right now. She's in her little apartment, hopefully keeping her, her, volume, down, her volume down on the TV That's for nice. me. Yeah, she's great. And my dad passed away 10 years ago. These are both my adoptive parents and I love them very much. But after I was adopted, things went really well for about nine years, just like any other kid, I would say, or you know what we would hope for any other kid, any other childhood, just typical. And then things changed. The biggest thing that changed was at nine that I was molested. I was in a 4-H group. If you don't know what 4-H, it's kind of like a Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, that kind of thing. But for kids that are uh, from these areas where I was, which is a small town called Rotterdam, near rural farmland, and you learn about agriculture, and you learn about farming, and you learn about nature and the environment, all these beautiful things, and that's what we were learning. What we were also being uh, ha having had happen was we were being groomed. And we didn't know that, a bunch of us kids, and about half of us, uh, if I remember right, and again, I was very young, uh, did fall into that pattern of uh, being uh, pulled into the grooming, and about half of us didn't, but the half of us that did were, were molested by this 4-H leader. And there's a long story around that, but I think in short, that's the first piece that I think set the pattern for much of how I looked at myself. The way I was looked at as someone who was being groomed is how I started to look at myself as a, pardon the expression, piece of meat, an object, something that was used, something that could be manipulated. We have a word now, it's, uh, it's called gaslighting. And that's a very famous movie called Gaslight uh, from, from I think the 30s or something like that. But it's a very good word now because it's a very narcissistic tendency of folks that, people that will molest, people that will um, uh, abuse children. It's a narcissistic tendency to gaslight someone, to manipulate them and to groom them to think that what's wrong is right. What's light is day, what's, um, you know, what's good is bad. And I was- well, Kevin, I, I remember when, I think we spoke about our parallel right. with the nine years old, I was abused by a priest at nine. And everything, like I looked at myself as a piece of me, I've actually said that on podcasts, that that's how I viewed myself, just as this piece of me that, you know, um, so it's very, you know, it's very parallel, parallel to my feelings. And it was a priest. So, right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, as well as I do, we didn't know that we were no. that we we didn't know we were being treated like a piece of meat we didn't know we were starting to assume that role as an object that was all happening as a rewiring right we weren't born that way we weren't quote unquote 
we weren't created. We didn't exist to be that, that way, to be treated that way. It took a lot of years. And I know from your, uh, I saw that on the YouTube channel for your initial, your initial launch, one of your initial podcasts there, your initial launches. And it is heartbreaking, except that I'm watching you and I'm knowing you did, you did find a path to healing. You did find a way to understand. I may never be able to fix that rewiring, but I can understand it. And then I can move past that. And that's why we're here just talking about the healing, talking about the rewiring, talking about the change in that. But yeah, you're right. That's exactly what attracted me to reach out to you on Facebook and to make this connection. I thought it would be uh, a worthy a worthy cause, so to speak, for it us is, to talk. It really is helping a lot of people. I know that. Right, and, and at the age of nine, again, nine, 10, 11, you know, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't understand those changes. And maybe I always say this, maybe if that's the only thing that had happened, because some people will say, well, well, that's what happened. Well, okay. Well, you know, people get over things. Well, maybe if I was only adopted, maybe I wouldn't have felt anything more than abandonment. Maybe if I was only adopted and abused, it would have just been abandonment and, you know, objectification. But then at the age of 11, I had my first beer and actually didn't have my first beer. I had my first six pack. And my friend Tony and I sat down on the railroad tracks and drank, you know, at 11, an entire two six packs of beer. Um, and I remember not much from that night, except of course I drooled all over myself, but I didn't get sick that night. And I went home and I woke up the next morning and I guess an 11 year old can really kind of bounce back from a hangover a little better than maybe you and I could now. But I woke up in the morning, didn't feel quite myself, but I felt happy. And I remember even then thinking, now I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I had, found wow. a way, I had found a way to feel like an object, like an abandoned person, but I felt like there was a way that I could live in that skin and not feel like I, I didn't belong here on earth, not feel like I needed to die, not feel like I needed to, uh, you know, stay, stay kind of in my shell. The alcohol helped me to feel normal. And there's a lot of studies on addiction that show this, that a lot of what we're doing is we're, we're, we're in an abnormal state. We just try to do more and more drugs and alcohol to try to get back close to what feeling normal is for say most people, most people who've never had a drink, most people who have never been abused and had that rewiring. And most people who have never maybe dealt with some of the adoption issues that I've dealt with. It's called the primal wound. And there's some real snaps and, and tears that happen within the fabric of a person. Not everyone, of course, not every adoptee would feel this way. Not every abused person has to talk about it like this or maybe finds different ways to help. Not everyone becomes an addict and rolls through life the way I did, but many of us do. And many of us never talk about it. We never say these words out loud to anyone. And we suffer and we suffer in pain and misery and fear. And there's, there's a way out of that. There's a way through that, I think is a better way of saying it. Mm -hmm. Much of what happened over the years after the addiction took over was a typical story, I'd say for, for many of people that, that I know that are in recovery. Um, everything from found myself ODing at a very young age, 12 years old. I found myself in the back of a police car at 13. I was taken out of the adoptive home that I was in and put in foster care again at 14. Went from a foster home to another foster home, to a group home, a detention center. And by the time I had rolled through those years, I had also found myself on the streets. I had been gang raped and things just started to add up that, that pattern had started say when I was nine, by the time I was 15, 
I was full blown, uh, I would say, uh, just destitute. Destitute physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. Destitution has so much less to do in my, in my book with how much you have or don't have. This can, have to a rich per this can happen to a rich person or a poor person or someone who just has, the, you know, say, a middle-class average lifestyle. It's the internal and the mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional uh, brokenness that really takes the most to heal. You can, you can throw time at this, and time does heal, but you can't throw a whole bunch of money at it and fix it. You got to really fix it from the inside. It's an inside job. Right. Yeah. Sure. But by the time now, I was... Wait. So you weren't with you weren't with the original your parents that you're with now. What what age did you get adopted? Well, I was adopted at two months old, but I was taken out and put in foster care at 14 again. So I was put back in the foster care system due to addiction and behavior issues. So right. that was that was due to that brokenness. And I went through the foster care group home. Um, a detention center locally here called Vanderheiden Hall in Troy. And then I was released back into the care of my family. But that was almost, that was when I was 15 years old, almost 16. And I never really stayed with them. I headed home, but went right back to the streets. I was on probation, but no one was really watching over me at that point. And when I was 16, I left. I ducked out of the house. I was on my own. I dropped out of high school at, ten, at the end of 10th grade. I'm a high school dropout. Wow, same parents though, same same parents that you that's have. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the the foster families that I were with were um, alcoholic. The first one, uh, alcoholic and abusive. The second one, and the group home was actually not a dysfunctional group home. But I was so broken at that point that I really couldn't take advantage. I couldn't really, uh, I wouldn't say take advantage, but I couldn't gain any sense of direction from what they were trying to give me. I just continued to really fall down that path of of addiction, of drinking, of drugging, and of, you know, uh, stealing and lying and cheating. And everything in my life was headed towards the next drink or drug. Everything in my life was headed towards what the next, I think, six years of my life would entail, which would be, I had my first daughter when I was 16. My second daughter was born when I was 17. I was 18 when I joined the Navy. I was 19 when I got married to their mother. Uh, I was 19 when she left me. I was 20 when the mm -hmm. Navy threw me out. And by the time I got thrown out of the Navy, my wife had left me. My kids were taken away from me. My parents really wouldn't let me in the house anymore. And I think wisely so. People weren't abandoning me, although it felt like it. People were distancing themselves. People were trying to take care of themselves because I was so self-destructive that the destruction was, was happening all around me. And by the time I was 20, 21 years old, I ended up in jail. I was arrested for seven different felonies, amongst others, DWIs, things like that. Did spend time in the county jail for that. And by the time I got out of jail and got back on the streets, I found my way to prostitution. And most of my last years at the bottom were spent on the streets of Schenectady, the town that's so fun to pronounce, literally as a prostitute in the area, a male prostitute, and dealing drugs and, of course, um, living that lifestyle that goes along with that. I could really go into the, um, the details of it, but I, we call that in, in the 12 step programs, a, a drunk -a log, a drug -a log. You know, you just kind of go on about all the details. The details are the same things that you've read in many books, the same things that you've heard in many podcasts and many stories. Uh, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's terrible. It's demoralizing. And by the time I hit bottom, which was, uh, I was a pretty young man still, I was 23. 
all this had happened to me by 23 years old. And it was January 1st, 1986 is when I had my last drink. And that would have been a good thing, except I didn't quit using drugs and alcohol because I had a problem with them. I quit using drugs and alcohol because I was, no matter how much I worked, I was working a night job, no matter how much I worked, no matter how much I borrowed, no matter how much I stole, I would spend 10 times as much that on the cocaine, 10 times as much that on the Jack Daniels. And so I quit using drugs and alcohol with this thought. Now remember, I'm a high school dropout. This was my thought. I'm going to quit using drugs and alcohol for one year so I can save enough money so I can buy enough drugs so I can deal drugs so I'll never have to buy them again. I had an oh, entrepreneurial idea, Lenora. This was uh, my entrepreneurial spirit. I couldn't spell the word. I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur was at that point. High school dropout, couldn't spell his last name. I was very sick, but that was my plan. I was trying, trying. The problem is I detoxed and didn't know I was detoxing. I was really sick and I won't go into those details too, but they're gross. They're the, you know, vomiting, they're diarrhea, they're things like blood. And, you know, you, you just don't look pretty. You don't smell pretty and you don't feel good at all. I thought I was dying. I thought I was very sick and I was, but I couldn't equate it to the fact that I had stopped drinking and drugging. Couldn't equate it. After four, three and a half, four days, maybe on the fifth day when the physical shakes subsided a bit. What really happened there was I had a spiritual awakening as I wanted to say, but it's also could be equated to almost a, a nervous breakdown as they used to call it, right? A psychotic break. Because what happened was through a circumstance, I almost like the curtain went up and all the things that the drugs and alcohol had shaded over, all the things that the drugs and alcohol had helped me to live with all the way back to that first six pack that helped me not to see the piece of meat, all the things that put me through there, that kind of lifted. And all of a sudden I saw that I had been a prostitute, that I had been the kind of person I was and I wanted to die. I just instantly wanted to kill myself. But I think there's a word that I'll use that I've been using just recently. Um, I felt like I didn't need, deserve to be here anymore, but it was a little more than that. I think just to use it, not dramatically, but accurately, I felt like I should be annihilated. The, the life that I had lived seemed so poor and so destitute that I should never have been here at all. And again, that was the beginning of my whole story. That was the beginning of my recovery. But the odd thing is, or the say interesting thing is, I was adopted first, I was abused second, I was, became an addict third. The first thing I dealt with was the addiction. It was almost a year and a half later when I started to really deal with the abuse because even though I was cleaning up from the drugs and alcohol, I wasn't behaving well. I could be with someone in a relationship and still if somebody came to me and said, come on, let's go in the back seat of the car, I was there. I just had no wherewithal. But then because I was clean, because I didn't have the drugs and the alcohol, because I was healing spiritually, it didn't feel right. It felt wrong, but I couldn't equate it to what had happened. All these things I just told you with the abuse, with the molestation, with the rape, I didn't know that had happened. I knew something had happened, but I didn't know it was wrong. All that grooming that had taken hold of me so long ago, all the things that I had lived through had had an effect on me to the point where it, I was gaslit to the extreme. I had gaslit myself. I had convinced myself that what had happened with those men, what had happened with that 4-H leader, well, that's just normal behavior. That's how adults and children interact. Thank God I was able to get some good help through therapy and then talk to other people and work through that. And the last thing that I really encountered was almost about 15 years ago, 
And that's where the book, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother starts. And 15 years ago, I started looking for my biological family. And that's when I started to experience the deeper feelings of, of abandonment, the deeper feelings of low self-worth, of not being worthy, not being of value. It goes back to, for me, I'm not saying for every adoptee, but for me, it goes back to that, that first piece of a mother giving birth and giving the child away and having no recourse from my perspective because in New York, the records were sealed. It wasn't an open adoption. It's a very sealed adoption. So my life has been fairly tumultuous through the younger years and recovery has been tumultuous too, but the healing, the power of the healing is just, it's reverberating now throughout my life in my relationship with my 91 year old mother, with the search for my biological family, with my wife and my, my I have four children, I have four, four lovely children, three grandchildren, and I am not a perfect father, and I am not a perfect son. I'm not a perfect anything, but every day I show up and I understand this is the gift I've, I've been given. I've been given such a wonderful gift. And I want to now translate that to the, the conduit between me and other people. And I think it's a spiritual connection. I think when I'm talking to you, it's not me talking to a Zoom screen. It's me through a conduit that's spiritual, emotional, mental, and unfortunately not in the physical presence, but we are, we are communicating. And it's not just me talking to you, it's me trying to receive from you and from your, from your whole life, from your whole spiritual essence, from your whole essence of who you are, where you came from and where you wanna go. And we can do that together in community. That's my story, Lenora. Wow. Wow. I want to, I want to know like how you actually got there though. Like what did you do? What work did you do? And I understand the whole veil kind of like, because you just feel like that was the things you were doing where were supposed to be happening. Right. Like, um, that's just normal. This is, you know, I'm sleeping with them. I'm doing this. And, and then the veil lifted you're still doing it, but you have a conscience about it. Is that what you mean? Like you have a you have a spiritual conscience about it. Like you know it's wrong. You know that you're more worthy than that, but you're doing it. That's like the on uh, the step to recovery. Do you know what I'm saying? Is that confusing to you? No, it's it's extraordinarily clear for me. And 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 what what I sum it up, you know, more more for me. I try to simplify it for myself. Is that's not what I was built for. I wasn't built for that. And so now that the drugs and alcohol are gone and I'm, maybe I've stopped stealing. Sure, I went to 12 step programs in order to maybe help you and of course your viewers, people, anyone who's watching right now, I went to 12 step programs because what was I dealing with at first? The drugs and the alcohol, I reached out for help and someone guided me to the 12 step world. And that's a whole nother story, but it was a wonderful opportunity for me to realize that there were people like me there were people that were struggling with these seemingly awful, awful areas of their life. And yet I walked into these rooms and they were laughing and their eyes were, were clear like mine are right now. I don't know if you could see it through the video, but they were sharp and they were, they were shiny. And I could feel something there that I wanted. I didn't think I deserved it, but they all said, no, come on in. We're just like you. And finding that community, I think, and that's always really my current and has been for some time my answer is, the way I did any of this is in community. And I didn't probably couldn't have put those words on it back then, but I did it with other people who were struggling and had struggled. I also did it, I think as time went on, with therapy. 
I think therapy has been extraordinarily helpful for me. And of course, a spiritual um, walk for myself. And I think that's a good way to put it because I, I tried to run in the first say seven years of cleaning up. I tried to run towards a spiritual- Like you mean well, no, run no, away, no, run- no, Not physical. <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to go fast towards a physical, to, okay. towards, towards a spiritual presence, towards a spiritual life, towards a spiritual relationship of one that I had never had before, but I saw other people had something. Because I recognized that the, the physicality of their clear eyes was one thing, but what I was looking for was what was behind their eyes. And it seemed like it was something that was to do with their spirit, to do with their, their inner selves. And I wanted that. And it was funny because it took me a long time to realize that that was something that was gonna happen for me anyway, slowly, slowly and over time. And that was, that's been the beauty of it for me. I've been, I've been clean and sober and doing all these things for almost 35 years. And the biggest thing I think I've learned is patience. And it was really hard at first to be patient, to be patient with myself, you know, that I was going to have to take a while. I didn't, the way we say it is, I didn't get here overnight. I'm not going to get cleaned up overnight. I cleaned up pretty quick. You know, I mean, I cut my hair. I had, I had crooked teeth. I had, um, they pulled four of my teeth in the first six months that I was cleaning up. I went to the dentist. I hadn't been for years, years. And they pulled four of my teeth which took care of five of the cavities. I had 16 cavities. They had to drill and fill another 11. I, you know, got my hair cut. I started washing, bathing. I mean, there was a lot of things that kind of look good on the outside. And those are important things because I think the more that I took care of myself, uh, even in the outside, I started exercising. I started eating differently. I'm not saying I ate right, but I actually ate food <laughs> rather than just ingesting alcohol. Yeah. You know, I ate, I ate things that had some nutritional value. Some of it, of course, was a lot of, yeah. Yeah, some substance to it and had better energy food. Yeah, um, I put on 15 pounds in the first three months. I was 100 and, uh, 115 pounds. 23 years old, I was 115? 115 pounds. Yeah, and my, I, son, my son is 113, but he is, he's just wired. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I was 23 years old. I'm five, five foot, eight and a half inches. And I was 115 oh, wow. pounds. 115 wow. pounds. My, my physical weight where it should be is around 145. I had to gain 15 pounds just to get up to 130. And then I crawled up to 135 and slowly started to have that equilibrium. I was into, I was in the one forties until I was probably in my mid twenties. And that was fine because I was, you know, finding that that balance physically. But what I really wanted was some kind of a inner, inner healing. I wanted some kind of an inner spiritual healing because no matter what I did on the outside, I seemed to always fall back into the patterns of self-destructive behavior. And mostly right. that was mostly that was because I was trying to fix it. So again, community was helpful, doing it with other people, finding people that I trusted. Again, in the 12-step program, I got a sponsor. And boy, oh boy, I've had that same sponsor for nearly 34 years. Hi, Richard. He usually watches these, so maybe he'll see yeah. it. And that was really wonderful. But the path that I've been on for a long time has been understanding that there's the essence of understanding who I am and what happened to me is important. Now that I understand it, it's my responsibility to take a step forward. Sometimes they're extraordinarily baby steps. Sometimes I'm just crawling forward on all fours, and that's fine. That's fine, 
as long as I'm not doing it by myself. So I do it here. We're doing it right now. I do not think this is me and you talking about how we've got it together, how we've managed to overcome. This is me saying, this is how I am managing this. This is how I am overcoming. This is how I'm making sure I don't go 10 steps backward because I probably will go one or two here and there. I will have issues. I do make mistakes. I'm not always truthful. I sometimes do things that I do feel remorseful about. The important thing is I don't want to feel regret. Regret will send me right back into the world that I came from. I, if, I'm, if I'm living in regret, I'm going to drink again. If I'm living in regret, I'm going to pick up drugs again. And if I'm living in regret, to be honest with you, all bets are off. I could probably, I could probably do this podcast. I could probably do this talk with you and still be a devious and distorted individual who is just lying right to your face. I could probably pull that off because we are pretty sneaky people at times, at least I am. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. So I have to make sure that I don't live in regret. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. I can, I can heal from disappointments. I have tools to deal with disappointments. I, I have disappointments every day. Regrets, regrets will kill me. Just kill me. Wow. That was powerful. Because that's true. I mean, I can, I, I'm the best at putting on that show sometimes, but being through what I've been through, um, very parallel in a lot of the things that you're saying, even in your healing process. Um, I could definitely bullshit my way on a podcast or whatever. Definitely. But I've made, it is therapy. It's totally therapy for me doing these. Um, and I am, I make that conscious decision. I must, I must pretend, I do pretend that there are flies on, like watching me all the time. Like people see you, Venora, they know you. And I want to be honest and truthful. You know what I mean? So I could probably bullshit my way through an interview. I could pro or sit down, but I make that conscious choice to use it for, for my therapy too, to help others. It's a very conscious decision to do that. It is I know amazing. what you mean by that. It, it is amazing to me because I know people have gotten to know you. I've gotten to know you. So when I sit here and talk to you, it's because I've seen, and we haven't spent any time together. We're not best friends. We've never sat around and had, you know, iced tea or lemonade under a tree in the backyard. We've talked for about an hour, which was a wonderful conversation. And we have each other's, we have each other's presence, which means I've been able to listen to your podcast, listen to your story, see you on the videos. And so I relate to you based on my understanding of what you're presenting to me. And that's the big thing for me. I really want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't want to have to, in my mind, is she BSing? Is she full of crap today? Is she just snowing me or not? I don't want to even think about that anymore. All I want to do is say, am I BSing? Am I snowing you? Am I full of crap today? Because if I'm doing that, I might as well just turn this microphone off right now and go home. That's what I'll regret. I don't regret having interactions with other people who may or may not be perfect. No one's perfect. Everyone's going to have moments like that. I regret when I get off this call, I'm saying, did you just talk to Lenora and all of her audience and you weren't yourself? You weren't in your integrity. Because I think there's a big word that we use a lot, which is authenticity. And I'm gonna say it's a good word to be authentic. And you and I are being authentic, but the truth is 
even when somebody's being inauthentic, they're being authentically inauthentic. You can't be inauthentic. You can only be as you can only be what you are. But you, but you cannot be a person who has let who, who is acting with no integrity and still be in your integrity. There's no way to have integrity. You either have that or not. There are some things that are dichotomies, and there's a real piece of me that says, Kevin, you're either BS or not BS, right? There's no, there's no like middle ground. I'm either speaking with integrity, I'm either in my integrity, I'm either talking to you with that integrity, or I'm not. And I think that I understand that I want to look at everybody in my life, you especially, because we're talking right now, whatever moment I'm in, and say, this is a person of integrity. It's a person that I'm going to open up to, and we're going to be two people speaking to each other as authentically as humanly possible, but we're going to be in our integrity right now, right here, and that's going to be what's going to be the most powerful aspect of our conversation. People won't take something away from this because of any gem that we put out. Nothing we're saying today is something that hasn't been said before. We can't make stuff up. We're not brilliant like that, and probably no one is. But we can do it in integrity, and that's what comes through. That's what people hear, not just with their ears, but as you and I were saying earlier, you decode it. You decode it mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's what comes into people. That's what they hear. Wow. Amen. Man. So good. Um, and what are you doing? What are you doing now? Like, what are you doing? Are you working with people or are you, what are you doing? Yeah, my, 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 that's a good question. Doing. I love that word doing. There's so much that I feel like I'm doing. And mostly what I'm really trying to recognize is that every day I'm trying to show up. So yes, I have my full-time job. Yes. And you listed that earlier. Yes. I have the YouTube channel and these are some of the most I think thing, the, the things that are keeping me busy, the things that I'm doing, YouTube channel is very doing. There's a lot that I put into that. The book is coming out on November 10th called Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, a little shameless plug there, but we're talking about that right now because that's stuff I'm doing. I'm doing the marketing, I'm doing the research, I'm doing all the things, but all that is paling. And I've just been talking about this recently because I do a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, you know, work with people. And I do a lot of advocating. I do work on the board of RAI. I do all those things. And those are things that I am not doing. I am being. I'm trying to show up and connect with other people and be here in the moment. And I will tell you a quick little story. The other day, I was mowing my lawn and a person that I really don't know very well, who's a neighbor, saw me and walked over. I don't even know their name. They don't, I don't even think they knew mine. We we're talking about Facebook. Facebook led to a story about um, my adoption. That story of adoption just came out of my mouth, just in general, because I talk about it easily. And then this person looked at me and said, can I talk to you? Now, I'm not going to disclose here that whole conversation because this is for the world. But the conversation was profound. It was some questions they had about adoption in their life. Adoption, being an adoptee, searching, all those wonderful things that I've already had experience. But more than that, I have experience, I have strength. And I have some hope that I can share with them. I didn't know when I was out cutting my lawn that that was going to happen. But I needed in that moment to recognize uh, this isn't about getting back to cutting your lawn, Kevin. You have to be here right now with this person. And it wasn't what I was doing. It was just the act that the two of us immediately had the same connection that you and I have right now. It's this conduit that we have right now. I have a purpose. I don't just do things so I can get them done. I... I try to realize that everything that I do, every breath I take 
is why I was created. I'm here for a purpose. I never knew that before. I thought my purpose was to be used and abused. I thought my purpose really was pretty much non-existent. Like I didn't even belong here. It's almost like I should have never been born. And through the healing process and through the spiritual healing, I've really learned to understand that. No, I have, I have, you know, it's not just like a one-off. Oh, look, now I know my purpose. I always have purpose. I always have a reason to be here. But the book is coming out soon. So a lot of the work is going on that. Um, there are other paths that I will take after the book comes out that's tied to the book because all three, all three of the areas that the book covers, which is adoption and the adoptee experience specifically, and abandonment. And then the other one is, of course, the uh, child sexual abuse and survivor and thriving. And the third, of course, is the addiction and recovery. All three of those silos, as I call them, they just have a lot of a lot of a lot of um, uh, connection to almost everyone. If the book, unfortunately, is is a book that almost no one on the planet will not have some connection to it, based on those three areas. And unfortunately, people like me and others we have all three and more. I mean, there could be mental illness, there could be suicide, there's many things in the book. And I believe that the book now will be a, a, a springboard, if not a platform for much more work to come in which hopefully the message can get to others and we can share that with, with organizations and individuals. Uh, thank you so much for that. That's gonna help so many people. I know it, I know it. I can't wait for it to come out. Um, I do ask all my guests if they could share um, some parting words, words of wisdom, anything you wanna share with the audience, the listeners. Thanks, I don't know how to end something like this. I think you heard most of what I wanted to say about community. This is all about us doing this together. And I hope that if you have a story to tell, tell that story. If you have something that's inside of you, and I know it's hard to do, find somebody that you can trust and share. I have no advice. Just my experiences have shown this is how we grow and change. I say this in humility. I say this in great humility as much as I can muster. So I hope that you understand that I recognize that I have to act in humility. I've got a phrase that I always end with. If I do not become humble, I will be humiliated. I don't wanna live in humiliation anymore. I'm no one's doormat. I bow before no man. I wanna be here before you, but I come before you. I am here in humility, but I have purpose and I have reason and I have a spiritual essence of who I am. And I hope that you can find that too, but we can do it together. I promise you, we can do it together. Amen. Awesome. Kevin, that was beautiful. Uh, where can people get in touch with you? And I will have all his information in the show notes, but sure. where, are you most, sure. where are you most active? No, there's two, two real easy ways to find me. And of course, the easiest thing is to Google Kevin Barheight. And you got to deal with the spelling of the last name, people. Kevin Barheight, B-A-R-H-Y-D-T. If you Google me, you'll find there's only probably two that'll come up, but you'll find me. There's a lot of videos. I'm up on YouTube. You can find me on YouTube. I have my own channel and you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Those are really my primary. Please find me on LinkedIn. Find me on Instagram. These are all places where I do inhabit and I'd love to connect. The other thing you can Google is Dear Stephen Michael's Mother little easier to remember and easier to spell. If you just type into Google, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, everything about me will come up and you'll be able to find me there. That's awesome. Thank you. And I'll have it in the show notes. Just hang out for a minute. Everybody, all my information is going to be in the show notes, my Google phone number, if you need to get in touch with me for anything, uh, all my websites, all of that. Uh, the Raw Bar, I talk about it every show. Um, 
only packaged good I eat. I am an affiliate and a ambassador. They do not sponsor me. They are, they give 10% of their net proceeds to feed the hungry children worldwide. I love this couple. They're a young couple based out of Minnesota, Jake and Rachel. You must go to the affiliate link. Please check out their website. Buy from that link. That will help me and I'll help them. They are vegan, but they fit every diet. Uh, protein packed, 18 to 22 grams a, a bar. Uh, organic, all organic ingredients, uh, 11 to 13 net carbs, no artificial sweeteners put together by coconut oil, my brain food. I eat it all the time. Coconut nectar, black strap molasses and Himalaya salt. And one more thing. I don't, I don't know if you do, but I'm going to start asking you all to support me. Um, you know, like my content, if you like it. Uh, subscribe, please. Uh, if you go to my YouTube channel or to all the major platforms, it's a new dawn. I would really appreciate the support. I haven't asked at all, but you have to ask to receive. So please try, go there, subscribe, share, comment. I would greatly appreciate it. And on that note, thank you so much, Kevin, for joining me. I appreciate it. You have a wonderful rest of the day. You too, Lenore. Wonderful time. Thank you so much. Thank you.